Welcome to the Harmony Christian Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by today's message from Pastor Josh Shoemaker. Read here at Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will give him the throne of his father, David. Last week, we began this little mini series uh, in this Christmas season called His Name Will Be. And we're discussing the different titles, the different names Jesus is given through this Christmas season and through this Christmas story. Last week, we talked about why his name was Jesus, which in the Hebrew is actually the word Yeshua. And we learned that there's this mosaic God is painting, isn't he? This mosaic that when you are far away, or I'm sorry, when you are up close in the mosaic, you see all of these little details, all of these little pictures, all of these little things, uh, these beautiful paintings that are these small miniature paintings. But then when you back up and view the entire mosaic as a whole, you begin to see that God is painting a bunch of little stories, but it's making up one big, beautiful picture, one big, beautiful mosaic that he is creating. And so you zoom in and see these little pictures, but the big story God is saying is this, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit dwelt together in perfect love and uh, unity. And they wanted to share that love and unity that they have with another person, with another creature. And so they created man, it says, in their very own image and likeness, he created them. But we learned that through the fall, through the fall, that image became distorted. The image that God had created in them became distorted through the fall. And not only did man's image become distorted, but our image of God, our view of God became distorted as well. So why did they name him Jesus? They named him Jesus because Yeshua means Yahweh is salvation. What they were telling us by naming him Jesus is that Jesus has come. This man was born. This child was born to do two things, to restore your image as the son and daughter of God and to restore our image and view of the father that he is not a God who withholds from us but he gives us all good things that all of the heavenly bless all of the blessings all of the gifts that heaven has to offer are yours through Jesus so Jesus comes to tell us that our image has been restored we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and also that our image of God is restored, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
If you have seen me, Jesus says, you have seen the Father. If you don't see it in the person of Jesus, it's not in the Father. If it's not in Jesus, it's not in the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Today, we are going to pull on another thread. We're going to zoom in on another piece of the mosaic. And we're going to discover why he is called the son of David. Why is Jesus called the son of David? The, the term son of David is probably not a foreign term to you. If, uh, especially, you know, here in this Christmas season, you hear the term son of David quite frequently. Um, and if you read your Bible at all, you will find that scattered throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is this term, son of David. So the term is probably unfamiliar to you. But when we hear the word son of David with our Western American ears, it becomes another title of Jesus. He's the son of David. But for a Jew especially a Jew living in the times of Jesus, when they hear the word son of David, it means something way more significant, much more significant. It's not just a title. It's actually who they've been waiting for all along. Son of David is who they have been searching and waiting for all along. That's why when Matthew starts his gospel, the very first thing he tells us in his gospel is this. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That the very first thing Matthew tells us, when Matthew sits down to write the book, of Matthew to give an account of this person, Jesus, the very first thing he wants us to know is that he is the son of David, that he is the son of David. And he begins to write this genealogy, starting, starting here with Abraham, working its way through David all the way to Jesus. You see, um, the genealogies aren't in there just because Matthew wanted to be a good steward of history. The genealogies are there announcing something to us. The genealogies are announcing to us and to Israel that this is the person you have been waiting for. He is the son of David. This is who Israel was looking for all along. That's why in Matthew chapter 12, when someone brings Jesus, uh, brings to Jesus this demon-possessed man, and Jesus casts out this demon. That's why when the crowd saw Jesus cast out the demons, they looked and they, they looked at each other and they said, Could this be the son of David? Could this be the son of David? It's why, um, it's why in Matthew chapter 15, a Gentile woman approaches Jesus. And ask him to heal his demon, her demon-possessed daughter. And this is what Jesus, what she says to Jesus. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely possessed. 
Have mercy on me, son of David. In Matthew chapter 20, there are two blind men begging on the side of the road. And they hear that Jesus is making his way down the road. And they begin to cry out, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowds yell back at the, the two blind men and tell them they need to be quiet. But they yell out all the more, no, no, no. If this is the son of David, I need to get to his attention. And so they yell out, son of David, have mercy on us. It's a week before Jesus's crucifixion. It's a week before the cross and he's coming into Jerusalem. And he sits upon a donkey and he begins riding into the town and the people from the town come out and they begin celebrating Jesus. They cut down palm branches and begin waving them in celebration of Jesus. And what is it that they're yelling? What is it that they're saying? They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The son of David was who Israel was looking for all along. Why do they keep calling him son of David? Why is it that they are excited and they begin talking to one another? Could this be him? Could this be the one that was promised? Could this be the son of David? Why do they keep asking that question? To find the answer, we must go back once again to the Old Testament and begin looking at the man himself, David. David, at this point in time, let me give you some context, has become king. He has now united the kingdoms together. And the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah are now one nation, united under one king, David. David moves in and uh, he moves in and he, he clears out all of the Jebusites that were in the, the city of Jerusalem. And he, is, he, he takes over the fortress of Zion and establishes it as the city of David. It becomes the fortress of David's kingdom. He then clears out all of the Philistines that were oppressing Israel and coming against Israel. He takes out all of the Philistines. And after he takes out all of the Philistines, he's, he realizes that the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the very presence of God, is not in his kingdom. So the first thing he does after he unites the kingdom, after he clears out the enemies and establishes his fortress, the first thing he does is he says, we have to have the presence of God in our city. So he goes out and gets the Ark of the Covenant. He brings it into the city. He sets it in a tent. And now it brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David, his heart becomes stirred when he realizes that he is living in a beautiful cedar castle. But the ark, the presence of God, is dwelling in a tent. And so David's heart becomes stirred and he's, he begins to ask the question whether or not he should build God a house to dwell in, to build a place for the Ark of the Covenant to rest in. And we're going to read here in 2 Samuel. And I really, uh, we're going to read, a, we're going to read quite a bit here. So um, just stay with me, but trust me, it's extremely important. 
uh, for us to be able to understand uh, why he is called the son of David. So we're going to start in chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1 here. It says, Now it came to pass when the king dwelling in his house, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord uh, had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, I have never, I, I, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And I want to pause here for just a moment. Why? The, uh, Jesus, Jesus, or I'm sorry, the father says this to David. Are you going to build a house for me to dwell in? And I love this, this phrase that God says to David because it's like God is surprised by David. That, that when he says this, he's not rebuking David. He's not coming against David and saying, David, you think you can build me a house? No, he's saying, David, he says it there in the scripture later on. He says, all this time I've been in a tent. I've never one time asked any of the prophets, any of, uh, any of the people to build me a house. But you come along and you want to build a house for me? I never asked you to do that. And, and God sees something in David. He sees this heart of worship and honor in David. That though God never gave the command for him to build him a house, David's heart said, I can't dwell in luxury while the presence of God is in a tent. And out of a heart of worship, David says, I want to build you a house to live in. And God's heart is moved by the heart of David. That David wants to build God a house so from the place of his heart being moved by David's worship, God makes a covenant with David. That David worshiped God by wanting to build him a house, honored God, and then God turns around and begins to promise David some things. And we're going to read it here now. It says this in verse 8. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and I've cut off your enemies from before you and I've made your name great, like the name of the great men who are on earth. Moreover, and here we go, here's the promises. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more 
nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I've caused you to rest from all of your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. David said, I'm going to build you a house. And God looks back and he says, no, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom will be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever according to all of these words and according to all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So David says, God, I want to build you a house. And God turns around and said, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. And this chapter, chapter seven, second Samuel chapter seven becomes an important chapter for Israel. In fact, this becomes the hope and prayers of Israel, that the promises given to David became their promises as well. And you really emerge from 2 Samuel chapter 7 with four distinct promises. You can kind of break down the promises into four distinct promises. Let's look at these real fast. The first promise is this, that I will establish David's house. And of course, this doesn't mean a physical house. When God says that he is going to establish his house, he's talking about David's kingdom. That through his blood, through his seed, the kingdom of David will rule forever. That there will always be a son of David sitting on his throne, sitting on the throne. So the first promise is this, is that David, your throne, that when you die and when you are laid to rest with your fathers, that your seed, your seed will be established in the kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will be established forever. The throne will never be taken away from your seed. So that's promise one. Is everybody with me? Second promise was this, I will establish God's house. So God said that he's going to establish David's house. And then he says that David, through your seed, I will establish God's house on the earth. So David, you wanted to build me a house, but you will not actually do it. Instead, your seed will build my house. And of course, this is uh, fulfilled in part through Solomon as the next Solomon, uh, David's son becomes the next king. And Solomon does end up building a tabernacle, a dwelling place for the Ark of the Covenant for God to dwell in. So that is established in part through Solomon. The third promise was this, I will establish Israel's house. So he's going to build David a house. He's going to build his own house through David's seed and now he's going to establish Israel's house. That for, for Israel, um, it will not be like the reign of the judges where they were constantly being oppressed by pagan 
uh, pagan countries, but that there will be a place of rest for Israel, that, that Israel is going to plant them and they will be able to come into a place of rest. And the fourth promise was this, the mercy of God. The mercy of God. And God says it like this. He says, if you commit iniquity, if your house commits iniquity, God's mercy will not depart from your house, David. And he goes on, he says that, that you, you're, you may be chastened with the rods and the blows of men, but my mercy will not depart from your house. So there's these four promises God establishes. Again, the first is God's going to build David a house. God's going to build his house through David's seed. He's going to build Israel's house. And then the fourth promise is that the mercy of God will not depart from him and from his seed. So these promises, although given to David, become the hope and prayer for all of Israel. Why do these promises then become so important for Israel? Why do these promises become so important for Israel? So for us to, again, fully understand this picture, we have to look back at Israel's history. And when you look back at Israel's history, you realize that they are nomadic people. Even in the very beginning with Abraham, what does God say to Abraham? Abraham is living in his homeland of Ur. And God comes to him and he speaks to him. And what does he say? He says, Abraham, pack all of your stuff. Pack your family. Get all of your things together. And go to a place that I will show you. Go to a place. Husbands, how many of you, if you told your wife, listen, God spoke to me. And we're supposed to leave Madison County. And go to a land that I, he will show us. How many of you wives would be okay with that, right? He tells him to go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham spends his entire life never settling. He lived in a tent his entire life, was constantly on the move, was always displaced. Then his son Isaac comes along. Isaac is also nomadic and is always displaced, never has a place to call home, never has any roots. Jacob comes along who becomes Israel and Jacob is displaced, has no place to call home. The promise was given to Abraham, right? That they would live in the land of Canaan. But Abraham, Isaac, nor Jacob ever live in the promised land. They're always nomadic. They're always displaced. And then there seems like there's this little glimmer of hope through Joseph in Egypt. And Israel moves into the land of Egypt and establishes home. They put roots down in Egypt and it looks like, okay, they have a place to live. They have a place to call home. But how many of you know that that turns into tragedy? As the Pharaoh begins to become nervous because Israel is starting to grow bigger and bigger and bigger, and there's more and more descendants, there's more and more children, there's more and more men and women, and there's, there's this people that have grown, and so the Pharaoh gets nervous and, and captives uh, the people of Israel and pulls them into slavery. And so once again, they're displaced. They're in slavery and in bondage to Pharaoh for 400 years. 
Until finally God raises up a deliverer in Moses. Moses comes and he sets the people free. They leave Egypt only to do what? Begin wandering in the wilderness. Homeless once again. No place to call home. No place to have roots. And once again, Israel is homeless and nomadic for 40 years. Finally, God raises up Joshua, Yeshua, takes the people finally into the promised land, overcomes their enemies, casts out their enemies from the land, and they move into the promised land. And once again, it looks like finally, finally, they're in the promised land. They have a place to put their roots down. But then we get into the book of Judges. And we see that even though they have a place to call home, they are constantly being bombarded by pagan nations. They're constantly taken back into oppression. Even though they're living in Israel, they're in oppression to the pagan nations around them. And you see this pattern develop in the book of Judges where they become oppressed by a pagan nation and God raises up a deliverer. Their hearts are turned back to God and God delivers them from the pagan nation only to find in the next chapter that another pagan nation comes in. That Israel's heart once again gets led astray. And they leave, they, they start following pagan nations and the pagan nation comes back in, oppresses them. God raises up a deliverer, sets them free, only to the next chapter see that another pagan nation comes and oppresses them. And so yes, they have a homeland, but they're constantly living in oppression from the enemy. And then they cry out for a king. They cry out to God for a king. And so God raises up Saul to be the king. And once again, it looks like, praise God, now we can finally rest. We have a king on the throne. And how many of you realize that story doesn't end well either? Saul lifts up his soul, his heart to idols, becomes disobedient to God, and the kingdom is stripped away from Saul. And Israel is once again left uh, once again, nomadic or uprooted. But then finally, God raises up another king. And this king is a man after God's own heart. This is King David. And David comes in and sits on the throne and begins establishing his kingdom and his rule. And what does David do? A people, he takes a people of Israel whose hearts are fickle, right? They're constantly back and forth between paganism and coming back to God, paganism and going back to God. And David takes the heart of Israel and leads them back to God and establishes Israel's identity and heart in God. And David begins to rule and he unites the kingdoms together. He strengthens the kingdom. And then God, he, then he decides he's going to build God a house. And then what does God do? God turns around and begins to promise David and Israel these things because of David's heart of worship. That Israel, you're no longer going to be oppressed. 
that you're no longer going to be dispersed and dis disjointed and displanted, but I'm going to plant you, Israel. And I am going to free you from your oppressors. That, that, that um, the house of God is going to be established in your midst. And so when you begin to look back at the history of Israel, you can see why these promises become their hope and their prayer. Their pro these promises become their hope and their prayer. Amen. Under David's leadership, God gives Israel these promises. Israel believes that finally their nomadic season is over, that the displacement is over and the oppression is done. And all throughout David's king, or uh, all throughout David's reign, this is true. They are established. Their enemies cannot overcome them and conquer them because David is a mighty warrior. Their hearts are established, not in the paganism of the nations around them, but in the heart of God. And throughout David's reign, the kingdom is strong and it is good. And you think finally Israel has come into the place of rest that was promised them. And God makes all of these promises that this kingdom that you are experiencing now will be established forever. But as you begin to look into the rest of Israel's history after David, it's kind of disheartening. Because when you look into the history of Israel after David, what you begin to see once again is they fall back into the pattern of displacement. They fall back into the pattern of oppression because their hearts, once again, when David is off his throne, their hearts become fickle again. And they begin chasing after idols once again. And they become oppressed again. And they become displaced again. In fact, they, they so chase after idols over and over again that Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he actually destroys the house of God that Solomon built. And so you look at all of these promises of God and then you look at Israel's history after the promises are made and you think, God, where are you? Was not the promise that you would establish your house forever. Was not the promise that you would establish David's reign forever. But then you look at their history and you see wicked king after wicked king after wicked king ruling Israel once again. They move into a place then of exile. They are uprooted from, is from Canaan once again, from the promised land again. And they go into another season of slavery and exile in Babylon. And you have to wonder if they're crying out once again, God, where are you? Where are you? Did you not promise us through David that these things would not happen again? I don't know about you, but I've been in seasons of my life where I feel like I've had a promise from God. But the reality of what's happening around me doesn't line up with the promise. And you cry out to God, or I've cried out to God, God, where are you? This is not the promise. This is not the fulfillment. God, where are you? And Israel does something interesting. During this time, there's this, this dialogue that begins taking place between God and Israel in this season after David. Where God 
begins to remind Israel of the promise again. That God, even, even in the midst of, it seems like the promises are not being fulfilled, God begins to say things to Israel like this again in Jeremiah 23. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in safety. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. What's interesting about this passage, what's interesting about this prophecy in Jeremiah is that it's literally prophesied right before Israel's taken into captivity and exile into Babylon. And God's reminding them of the promise right before they are taken back into exile. God is saying, no, no, no. David is still coming. The son of David is still coming. Your day of freedom is coming. And right after Jeremiah says it, they are taken into exile. Where are you, God? And Israel begins asking God, where is he? And they begin reminding God of the promise in this dialogue. In Psalms 132, it's short. It's a short passage, but man, it hits you right in the heart. This is Israel's dialogue with God. They say, Lord, remember David and all of his afflictions. Can you hear the broken heart of Israel? in the midst of exile, in the midst of displacement once again, God, remember your promise to David. And uh, this is a little side note of the message here this morning, but this is sometimes what intercession looks like. Is God has given you a promise and there's going to be seasons when you're waiting for that promise to be fulfilled where God is going to have to come in and remind you of the promise. And he's going to have to say, listen, I know it's rough right now, but the son of David is coming. He's coming. And God will encourage you. But there's also times where you look up to heaven and you pray, God, remember your promise. And you remind God of his promises. And this becomes the season of intercession when you find yourself having a promise, but not yet seeing it fulfilled. That God reminds you of the promise and you look up to him and you remind him of the promise. And through that dialogue, faith is established. Trust is established. And strength comes through that dialogue. Amen. By the time we enter the New Testament, there has been somewhere between 1,000 to 1,400 years since, God promised to David, since God's promises to David. And Israel is under oppression once again in the New Testament by the Roman government. And then Matthew comes in. And he says this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. What is Matthew saying here? Imagine yourself now, not as 
an American living in the West 2,000 years later. Imagine yourself as a Jew 2,000 years ago who has been believing for over 1,400 years for these promises to come to pass. That you've been living in oppression and your family has been living in oppression. And now hear these words through those Jewish ears in Matthew. This is Jesus Christ, the son of David. These genealogies aren't some kind of historical record. They're an announcement that the son of David has arrived. That oppression has ceased. That your freedom from bondage is here. And that his throne is to be established forever and ever. He is the son of David. Jesus is the son of David. Now imagine what this looks like through Jesus the announcement has come that the son of David is here. And that's why when, again, when people see Jesus healing people, when they see Jesus casting out demons, when they see all these things, they cry out that this must be the son. That's why they're so excited about the son of David. It's not just a title that they have given him. It's not just a genealogy. It's the promises being fulfilled. That he is the one they've been waiting for this entire time, this entire time. But what does this look like now in Jesus? What do these promises look like in the person of Jesus? That these promises have application, yes, obviously to the people of Israel, but these promises have application to us living 2000 years later as well. What are these applications? What does this look like in Jesus? Let's go through this here this morning. What was the first promise? God will build David's house. God will build David a house. The promise was that the kingdom of David's seed would have no end. That before David was king and after David was king, let's look at it like this. What does it mean? Why is it important that David's house is established forever? Before David was king and after David was king, there was oppression. There was a fickleness of people's hearts, right? That before David was king and after David was king, Israel was fickle and prone to idolatry. But David constantly leads Israel's heart back to God. David constantly leads Israel's heart back to God. What does this promise mean? This promise is this, that as long as the son of David is sitting on the throne, our hearts are no longer fickle. Our hearts are no longer prone to idolatry, but that the son of David constantly leads us back to the father. During the reign of David, the enemies of Israel were defeated and the kingdom was united and prosperous. What does the everlasting rule of the kingdom of David look like? It looks like this. Your enemies are defeated. The kingdom is united and prosperous. It's the promise in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us... 
A child is born, and unto us a son is given. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. But here's the second part of that promise. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice from this time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. That the son of David sits on his throne and the increase of his government and peace will, will have no end. What does this mean for us? The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Here's what it means to me. That even when there is idolatry, I, I say it wrong, idolatry in the land. There's another syllable in there, isn't there? Even when there is idolatry in the land, my heart is not troubled. Even when I look around and we can look around right now and find all kinds of scary things happening in the world. We can find all kinds of things happening in the world that, that are disheartening and that are troubling. But listen, when the king of David is on the throne, my heart is not troubled. Why? Because of the increase of his government and peace, there is no end. So even when we see idolatry, even when we see troubling things around us, here's the deal. God always, the son of David, always brings the heart of Israel back to God. For 2,000 years, listen, you think this is the first time that there's ever been some, some messed up things in the world? You think it's been great for 2,000 years, then all of a sudden the whole world just falls apart and there's all these issues? No, there's been issues in the world for 2,000 years. But for 2,000 years, God has not left us in dismemberment. God has not left us um, displaced. But for 2,000 years, when Israel or when his people fall into idolatry, what does he do? He leads us back to his father because of the increase of his government. And his peace, there is no end. So when I look around the world, I'm not troubled by the things I see. Obviously, there's things going on that I wish weren't happening. But listen, my heart is not, my, my heart is not um, uh, worried or in anxiety because I know something. The son of David is on the throne. And his government will know no end. He is not going to give up his seat. And as long as David is on the throne, he will constantly lead his people back to his father. Of the increase of his government and peace, there is no end. He will establish the house of David forever. Hallelujah. Promise number two, God's house will be established. There's a few applications here. When you look back at Israel, you see that their heart, because it was fickle, was always back and forth. They would serve God for a while, but then they would fall under paganism and begin following the idols of the pagan nations. And because their heart was so back and forth, their enjoyment of the presence of God was also back and forth. That when they were seeking God, they got to enjoy his presence. But when they were led astray and when they, they, uh, they were following the pagan idols that the presence of God would lift. And in fact, they became so fickle and their heart became so distant from God that as I said before, 
Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and actually destroys the temple, the resting place of God in Israel altogether. And here's the promise to David. He says, David, through your seed, I'm going to build my house. What does that mean for us today? It means this. It means that the presence of God never leaves. The presence of God never leaves because God's house is established. It's why when the angel comes to Mary, she says that he says this, his name will be what? Emmanuel. God with us. That through the seed of David, he establishes the house of God. And that because the house of God is established, the presence of God is always available to us. That God is with us. Amen? But there's something else cool about this. The son of David comes and announces that the presence of God is here to stay forever. But the son of David didn't come and build a house made of bricks and mortar. Instead, the son of David came and built a house for God to dwell in made of flesh and blood. Let me read you a scripture here. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? What is the house that God builds? It's not a temple like it was in the day of Solomon. That the house God builds, the dwelling place for God's presence is not a building. It's a person. And that person is you. That you are the house God builds. That you host the presence of God. So the son of David comes and establishes the house of God on the earth. And that house is not a house of brick and mortar, but it's a flesh and blood. We become the tabernacle, the resting place of God's presence on the earth. Amen. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. That God establishes his house, his presence in us through the son of David. The third promise, Israel's house is established. I'm almost done. Israel's house is established. What does this mean? Again, this has many applications but one of my favorite things that this means for Israel is this. What is the promise God makes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7? That the sons of wickedness will oppress them no more. The sons of wickedness will oppress them no more. That's why when Jesus is casting out demons the people begin to ask, is this the son of David? Because oppression is leaving the people of Israel because the son of David has come in and established his kingdom. And here's the application for us today, that through the son of David, oppression has to leave. 
that through the Son of David, whatever is oppressing us, whatever is, is, is weighing upon us, has to leave because the Son of David is established, that his kingdom is established. Amen? Whatever is oppressing you has to leave because the Son of David has come. Amen? Amen. The last one is this. And this one's interesting. The mercy of God that the mercy of God will be established forever. But there's this little caveat that is given in the, in the promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that's kind of interesting. And when you first read it, it's maybe even a little bit heavy to read because it says this, it says that though the mercy of God will never leave Israel, it says that if there is iniquity in the house, that they will be chastised by the rods of men and the blows of the son of men. And you read that and you think, okay, Jesus never sinned, right? But Israel did. And then you read in chapter, or Isaiah 53, this. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 7 says that, that we will be chastised. If there is iniquity, there will be a chastening by the rods of men. But then you read in Isaiah 53, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And this is what you see here. David's son bears the weight of our chastisement so that we can walk in the mercies of God. That David's son bears the weight of our chastisement so that we can walk in the mercies of God. That the prophet Nathan, when God tells him that the mercies would be there for Israel, but if there's iniquity, the, men, the sons of men would chasten them with the rods of men. What I don't think Nathan realizes, what he was seeing was the cross. But it wasn't Israel on the cross. It was the son of David bearing the chastisement for us so that we could walk in the mercies of God. When I looked up this word here, mercy, I'd never seen this before, but the word mercy in Hebrew means loyal love. Whew. Loyal love. So what is his promise to Israel? that my love will be loyal, that it will never depart from you. And then the chastisement of our peace, even though we've had iniquity, the chastisement of our peace was laid upon the son of David. Thank you, Jesus. Let's go ahead and stand together. The New Testament opens with the announcement that the son of David has come. And I love this as well. That at the end of the scriptures, in the book of Revelations, the very last chapter, it says this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So he begins 
the New Testament announcing that he is the son of David and he ends the New Testament declaring that he is the son of David. That just in case you forgot or it wasn't clear, Jesus says, I am the son of David. And because he's the son of David, all of these promises are now given to us. Let's pray together. Jesus, God, we thank you. God, that you had a plan from day one. God, that we can, we can look back and see the mosaic, the beautiful picture that you have created. God, that you have brought us back into fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. God, that through the Son of David, your house is established. And when your house is established, we don't have to be worried about the idolatry around us because you lead the people back to you every time. That of the increase of your government and peace, there will be no end. God, I thank you that through the son of David, God, that your house is established. And Father, you established your presence within our temple. God, that we are the temple, the place that hosts the very presence of God, that we never have to worry about not be having access to the presence of God because the presence of God lives in us. God, I thank you that you have established the house of Israel. God, that we don't have to be a people who are wandering around, that we don't have to be nomadic, but God, that we are planted in the sure mercies of God. God, that our oppression shall cease, Jesus. God, that those who, the wicked that would come to encamp against us, God, are, are dispersed because the son of David has come. And Father, I thank you for the mercies of God promised through the son of David. God, that even though we have fell into iniquity, that the chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. And now we can walk in the loyal love of God. God, I thank you for the son of David. Father, we honor you today. We love you, Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more messages like this or information about our church, please visit HarmonyChurchFamily.org.